0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Crisis of Masculinity. Why are boys falling behind please welcome Brendan Hafera, assistant director senior policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Simon Center.
1: Good morning. Thank you all for joining us for this event on crisis of masculinity. Why are boys falling behind. This panel is intended to promote inquiry and further examination of an important and often overlooked topic. What has been happening to our boys and young men in America and around the world for quite some time. Each panelist will focus on dispar- different aspects of this crisis. Dr. Piercy will discuss fatherlessness and other causes, Dr. Summers, The Education System and Education Policies, and Mr. Olson, Economic Shifts and Men Exiting the Workforce. It is our hope that this panel will mark the beginning, not the end, of a conversation. Panelists may disagree with one another and even heritage's policies, but we are going to forge ahead as this is a crisis in urgent need of attention and creative solutions. We are fortunate today to have a stellar lineup of panelists to help guide us. First is Dr. Nancy Piercy. Nancy is a best-selling author and speaker. A former agnostic, she was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Washington Times, First Things, Human Events, American Thinker, Daily Caller, The Federalist, and Fox News. And she has appeared on NPR, C-SPAN, and Fox and Friends. She's currently a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Piercy's books have been translated into 19 languages and include Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Love Thy Body, and most recently, The Toxic War on Masculinity, which we have available for purchase outside. Christina Hoff Summers is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where she studies the politics of gender and feminism, as well as free expression, due process, and the preservation of liberty in the academy. Before joining AEI, Dr. Summers was a philosophy professor at Clark University. She is best known for her defense of classical liberal feminism and her critique of gender feminism. Her books include Freedom Feminism, Its Surprising History and Why It Matters Today, One Nation Under Therapy co-authored with Sally Sattel, Who Stole Feminism, and The War Against Boys which was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year in 2001. And I will add that it is incredibly prescient and educational over 20 years later. Last, we have Henry Olson. Henry is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he studies and provides commentary on American politics. Mr. Olson is an opinion columnist for the Washington Post and his daily pieces focus on politics, populism, foreign affairs, and American conservative thought. Mr. Olson's work has been featured in many prominent publications, including The New York Times, The Washington Journal, The Wall Street Journal, National Review, The Guardian, and The Weekly Standard. And he is the author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, and The Four Faces of the Republican Party, co-authored with Dante Scala. Please join me in welcoming today's speakers.
2: Thank you, Brenda, for that introduction. And um, I'm going to use slides today, because I want to move through some facts very quickly. And that will help us to move faster. Um, let's, there you go. First slide. OK. Um, I'm going to start. My first fact is this. Um, you, where do you guys see it? Do you all see it? <laughs> OK. I don't see the slides. OK, great. Um, Look at this recent image from an Australian news tabloid. How old do you think this boy is? What, six or seven? What ideology calls a seven-year-old boy a potential monster and says we must stop the menace of toxic masculinity? No wonder there's a boy crisis. And I've been asked to address the problem of fatherlessness. And I, you know I want to start with the good news. There's going to be plenty of bad news today. But the good news is um, an anthropologist conducted the first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And what he found is that all cultures share the expectation, um, a, a common code for manhood, that the good man performs what he calls the three Ps. Protect, provide, and procreate, that is, become a father, raise a family. So universally, innately, inherently, men do know what it means to be a good man. There's another sociologist, another study, this one by a sociologist, found that there are actually two contradictory scripts that young men pick up today. The sociologist speaks all around the world, and so he came up with a very ingenious experiment. He asked young men two questions. First, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologists said all around the globe, young men had no trouble answering, answering that. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector. And the sociologists would ask them, well, where'd you learn that? They'd say, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they were likely to say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Then the sociologist would ask a follow-up question. He would say, what does it mean if I tell you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness. Uh, Win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich and get laid. I'm using their language. And so the sociologists concluded that, again, universally, innately, inherently, young men do know what it means to be a good man. I would say we're made in God's image, and therefore we do have an intuitive knowledge of what it means to be a good man. But they also feel cultural pressure to live up to the quote-unquote real man, And which includes includes very different traits. Not all of them are bad, of course, in a crisis. We want people, men and women, who can stand tough. But if it gets decoupled, disconnected from a moral vision, then these traits can slide into being things like entitlement, dominance, misogyny, what we might call the Andrew Tate phenomenon, right? Fast cars, fast money, fast women. So in response to the boy crisis, we are increasingly now seeing young men reach out to the Manosphere, right? the collection of online groups that we call the Manosphere, and that are kind of all sort of the Andrew Tate model. Or let me give you another one. Uh, Myron Gaines has been called, and the new York, new York Post called him the new Andrew Tate, who says, I help men transform from simps into pimps. All of all of marriage throughout history, he says, has been basically prostitution. So that all men are Johns, all women are whores. So where is the boy crisis coming from? A key cause is the the number of young men who are growing up without a father in the home. This is not a left right issue anymore. You know, people on all sides of the political aisle agree that fatherless boys are more likely to have trouble at school, to run away from home be addicted to drugs or alcohol, end up behind bars. Boys raised by traditionally masculine fathers generally do not commit crimes. Fatherless boys commit crimes. But the tragedy is that today, 40% of American children are growing up apart from their natural fathers. It is the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Isn't that something to be at the the, (laughs) the top of the heap for? Single parenthood. So the question then is, what is causing this flight from fatherhood? Well, one obvious reason is the way that fathers are mocked and ridiculed in, in the media today, portrayed as incompetent idiots, the Homer Simpson stereotype. So then the question is, where did these negative stereotypes come from? It turns out you have to go far back, farther back than most people realize. You have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution before that, most men worked with their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. The cultural expectation for men focused on their caretaking role. In fact, here's a, a surprising historical fact. Most of the literature of the day uh, on rearing or parenting was addressed to fathers. Right? If you go to a bookstore today, they're mostly to mothers. Right? But fathers were just as engaged with their children as mothers were, and of course, especially their sons, teaching them the skills they needed for adult life. Masculine virtue was described as duty to God and man. So how did we lose this concept of masculinity? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home, and of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, men were no longer working with with their family members, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's where we see the literature start to change. People began to protest that men were changing, that they were losing the caretaking ethos of the colonial era. They were becoming egocentric, self-interested, aggressive, acquisitive, looking out for number one. This is some of the language that was used at the time. So this was the first time that negative language began to be applied to the male character, and particularly to fathers. When fathers began working out of the home, they lost touch with the family dynamics. They were no longer as much in tune with their children's thoughts and feelings. And so already in the 19th century, we see the fathers begin to be painted as irrelevant and incompetent. Today, we're so used to fathers being out of the home, we don't realize what a shock it was at the time. Let me give you a few quotes. Um, This is an article in Parents Magazine from 1842. It says, paternal neglect has become one of the most abundant sources of domestic sorrow. Frances Willard, who was one of the most influential women of the 19th century, said, God is the father, but how many families there are where the prototype of of the divine is practically absent from Sunday to Sunday. As a result, boys started losing touch with a close-up model of what it meant to be a man. A sociologist writes, for the first time in American history, young men experienced an identity crisis. A historian says, boys grew up alienated from their fathers and from the world of adult males, which cut boyhood adrift. Robert Bly, some of you may have read his stuff, uh, he's the founder of the Contemporary Men's Movement, writes, the love unit most damaged by the Industrial Revolution was the father-son bond. He calls it industrial fatherlessness. And the most striking feature of child-rearing manuals is the disappearance of the reference to fathers. Boys had a lot of unstructured time, since their fathers were no longer supervising them, and people began to complain that boys were becoming wild and unruly. Here's a, uh, the leading 19th century psychologist said, never before has the American boy been quite so wild and so half orphaned. Don't you love that word? Their father's out of the home, so they're essentially half orphaned and left to female guidance in school, home, and church. Well, what happened when these half orphaned boys grew up? Well, they took their wild ways with them, so that historians tell us there was a huge increase in drinking, gambling, crime, gangs, prostitution. I tried to get a discrete image of prostitution. (laughs) Um, I was really happy to find this. Um, And sometimes a single quote, a single fact can crystallize things. So in 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there's a reason there was a great explosion of reform movements in the 19th century as well. The temperance movement, the abolition movement, the so-called social purity movement, which worked against prostitution and sex trafficking. And these movements did a lot of good, but they also created antagonism between men and women. Why? Because these vices that they were uh, addressing were traditionally male vices. Right? So one historian writes, almost all the female reform associations were implicit condemnations of males. There was little doubt as to the sex of the slave masters, tavern keepers, drunkards, and seducers. Or another historian writes, American society gave men the freedom to be aggressive, greedy, ambitious, competitive, and self-interested. And then it left women with a duty of curbing this behavior. And this is an image from the temperance movement. Look at the women kneeling and praying in the street, reinforcing that religion is for women, while the men in the saloon are standing there with their arms crossed. The tension is palpable. And one more expression of that tension, uh, the early feminists. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, the male element is a destructive force, stern, selfish, aggrandizing, loving war, violence, conquest, Acquisition, breeding in the material and moral world alike, discord, disorder, disease, and death. What America needs, Stanton concluded, is a new evangel of womanhood to exalt purity, virtue, morality, and true religion. So do you see the tension between men and women? It's already in the 19th century. And in the late 19th century, men began to revolt. They took the condemnations that women were lobbying against them and turned them into badges of pride. They basically said, if men are naturally lewd, rude, and crude, well, then these are not negative traits, they're normative traits. They're just the natural male character. And this evaluation took place especially after Darwin published his theory of evolution. This is surprising, because most of us think of evolution as a scientific theory. But it had a a huge impact on secular definitions of masculinity. Social Darwinists said that, the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival had to be men who were ruthless, brutal, savage, barbarian, and sexually predatory. To recover their authentic masculinity, they need to get in touch with the beast within. That was their favorite word. So whereas in the past, Christians had, Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God in them, social Darwinists urged men to live down to their presumed animal nature. And by the way, social Darwinism has come back in our own day under the label evolutionary psychology. This was a best-selling book. And the author says, human males are by nature oppressive, possessive, flesh-obsessed pigs. Giving them advice advice on marriage is like offering Vikings a free booklet on how not to pillage. And this older book was just reissued. Some of you may know George, George Gilder. Men are by nature violent, sexually predatory, and irresponsible. Their greatest yearning is to escape to a primal mode of predatory and immediate gratification. Are you seeing the origins of Andrew Tate? Are you seeing the ideas that now fuel the manosphere? Um, quickly, a few a few points on solutions, just to, to make sure I'm not leaving you hanging. Obviously. The long-term solution to any toxic behavior in men is reconnecting fathers to their sons. A psychiatrist says we 're not going to raise a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers." There was a 35 year, 35 year longitudinal study that looked at how parents are successful in passing on their religious, moral, and spiritual values to their children, and it came up with two surprising results. One is. Fathers matter more than mothers. My female students don't like this. They say, that's not fair. But it's a fact. Fathers matter more than mothers. And the second thing they found is what matters is the close, loving, warm bond. If the father is a moral exemplar, a leader in the community, a pillar of his church, but he's perceived as cold and distant, his children won't follow him. They will, they will not adopt his moral and spiritual values. Another study focused more on how to raise masculine sons. This was um, this reported in this book here. And surprisingly, a father's own masculinity was irrelevant. Again, what mattered was a warm, close relationship with his son. And a quick suggestion on policy recommendations, since we are in DC. <laughs> Um, a Harvard, Harvard University just published a study finding that during the pandemic, 78% of fathers said that by working from home, they got closer to their children, and they don't want to lose that. What I thought was cool, as you see underneath, it's, it was uh, reported in the New York Times. So family-friendly policies, or I don't say family-friendly because most people think that means women, father-friendly policies as what uh, government should encourage corporations to take on. Thank you very much.
3: Good morning, afternoon. Uh, And I'm so happy to be here and that the heritage is taking up this cause. I've been talking about it for many years. Many of us had. And um, at least the think tanks take it seriously, if no one else does. Uh, Thomas uh, Mortensen is a senior scholar at the Pell Institute for the Study of Opportunity in Higher Education. And that's a philanthropical group that, as its name implies, it looks for ways to improve opportunities for disadvantaged groups. Well, in the 1980s, early 80s, Mortensen uh, looked with great satisfaction at the data because it had been the case, especially before Title IX, there were uh, more men in college. Uh, The rate of college attendance was much higher for men than women. And uh, he noticed that uh, by around 1982, women had caught up. And as a father of two daughters, he was very proud and pleased to see this. But he kept watching the numbers, and um, with each passing year, the female advantage in college attendance grew. Uh, By the early 90s, he was alarmed. And on one occasion, he looked at the rate of women's advancement, uh, according to Department of Education projections, and he told his colleagues, only half in jest, The last male will graduate from college in 2068. Now, he was exaggerating, but the fact is not by much in the sense that our colleges are increasingly female-dominated. And I just looked at the latest data from the Department of Education, and rates of college attendance are now higher for uh, African-American girls, Hispanic girls, certainly white girls, than for white boys. And African-American boys are slightly behind white boys, Hispanic boys, in between. The girls, across all ethnic lines and race, what you find is that in our classrooms, because you have to say, if more girls are going to go to college, that's because of something that's happened earlier on, which is high school, junior high school, elementary school. And we find, at every level, the girls come to kindergarten, more prepared. Uh, they are far better readers. They get most of the honors. If you look at the lists of valedictorians, even aspirations. There was a time when uh, psychologists would measure, vocational uh, experts would measure the aspirations of young men and women, and young men had higher aspirations. There's been a reverse, and the girls are more ambitious. Now, when when uh, Mortensen, from the Pell Institute, when he announced you know, to the world that there had been this, this that you know that the that the the boys were on the wrong side of the educational gender gap, he assumed that there'd be a lot of publicity. And what he found, uh, because often his institute would release studies and that would generate publicity articles. Nothing happened. No, no, nobody wrote about this. I heard about it. I was working on my book, Who Stole Feminism? And I was on a radio show. And um, I was in that book, I was defending equality feminism, but I took exception to what I call gender feminism, a kind of radical view of the world that viewed women's oppression, particularly in the United States, as systemic, and that men were patriarchal overlords and it was a constant struggle for liberation and that we lived in a state of siege. And I, I just found it to be a ridiculous exaggeration. And um, I had noticed a little bit, I knew a bit about how boys were doing in school, but I was on uh, a program, it was on NPR actually, and people were calling in and an eighth grade teacher called in, a, a male teacher. And he said, it's crazy. It's certainly not the case that in my school the girls are oppressed and the you know the boys are the overlords and they're failing at everything. They're not. They're not even. They don't even seem to want to join the sports teams. He said, "Check this out." And he, and he mentioned Mortenson, and then I found Mortenson's uh, finding and have followed him ever since. And and in fact, this led me in in uh, 2000, 2001, to come out with my book, The War on Boys, and that book got a lot of publicity. And I was and after that, uh, the precarious state of boys became pretty well known. Uh, there were magazine covers and forums and so forth. What didn't happen was any initiative. There were no initiatives. There were no there was no you know, title IX for boys or applied to boys. It's never happened. And um, the schools of education, were continuing, I, I talked to people at that time and did as much research as I could to find out what was going there. And what you found was that they were focused on girls and the uh, struggles that girls were having. Finally, in 2011, I was very grateful because the Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, published a major study on, um, that acknowledged the plight of young men in school. It was called Pathways to Prosperity. And what they pointed out, was that in an economy where manufacturing was still dominant, uh, those with less education were not going to make it unlikely to make it into the middle class. They called uh, high, education beyond high school the passport to the American dream, and more women were getting it than than men, more young women than men, young men. Fast forward ahead, <laughs> recent years, people like Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, has looked at the data and concluded that by mid-century, more than a third of men between the ages of 25 and 54 will be out of work. Now, the under-education, the, the failure to educate, c- educate young men, creates all sorts of problems for them, for uh, women uh, who will make their futures with them, um, and it's, it's uh, dangerous to, for the future of our economy. Now, other countries have this problem, and they're forming commissions and doing all sorts of studies. And thought, What's happening here? It's still, after all these years, radio silence. Nothing, except in the think tanks. The think tanks are doing it right now at Brookings. Uh, uh, Richard Reeves has written a, v- a very good bo- book on the precarious state of boys. A lot of the same information that I had, that Mortensen had way back in the 80s, and now he's setting up a center for the study of men and boys. Uh, What, I don't have much time, but just to say, what are the forces against us? Why is no one prepared to listen? One thing, I think the schools of education are a big problem. They are carried away with an agenda that does not include, you know, specialties in how to save boys. Uh, there's an article by Lyle Asher, a, a scholar in the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education in 2018, called <coughs> How Schools of Education Became a Menace. Uh, and they are so carried away with, with uh, what... Well, I once heard on a French radio show that... Um, plus que tu mort. More politically correct than that, you die. More politically correct than our schools of education. And boys are not politically correct. Schools of education are not addressing the problem. They are not teaching teachers how to be, engage the male mind. Our schools do a much better job educating girls than boys. but That is not seen as a problem worthy of addressing. I'm not even sure they recognize the category of boy. So uh, women's groups, on the other hand, who t- we owe a, a great deal of uh, credit for strengthening women in education, there were major initiatives, special programs and scholarships to, to close the the college attendance gap and clo- close the math and science gap. Uh, but if you bring up the idea that maybe we should have such programs for girls and uh, for boys and, and young men, they call it backlash. And they will, they see it as part of a, uh, sort of obnoxious men's rights movement, and this is very bad. And even even President Obama uh, came a, a, with a program to help um, African American young men and to strengthen them academically in other ways. And there was a huge pushback, saying that this was harmful to African American girls. And this was they see it as a zero sum game. And I guess what I will leave you with is that it's not as if men and women or girls and boys are two separate tribes, they're two separate, you know, they're like on opposite sides competing for a single trophy. We're in this together. And if men are in trouble, so are women. If girls are in trouble, so are boys. We are in this together. Now I can sympathize, I know those, uh, some feminist uh, colleagues of mine, they'll say, well, there's been you know, centuries of patriarchy, and now the boys and men are a little bit behind. Uh, so what? You know, Just give women a chance to soar. And uh, isn't it time that they enjoy having all the advantages? And I understand that impulse. I think it's misguided. I became a feminist in the 1970s because I did not appreciate male chauvinism. I still don't. <laughs> But the proper corrective to chauvinism is not to reverse it and practice it against males. The the proper corrective (laughs) is basic fairness. And fairness today requires that we address the serious educational deficits of boys and young men. The rise of women, however long overdue, does not require the fall of men. Thank you.
0: Thank you for coming. I uh, am dealing with what might be called the downstream of the boy crisis, which is, at some point, boys become men. And they may be men or they may simply be males. But one thing you expect adults to do is work. And what we're finding is that, unlike women, whose labor force participation rate has recently hit new all-time highs, men... Are dropping out of the labor force. So let me start with the dreary statistic that you may have heard, but uh, if you have, it bears repeating, and if you haven't, it might be news to you and shock you, which is that throughout the time when the government is keeping these statistics, about 96 to 97 percent of men in their prime working age, 25 to 54, were engaged with the labor force. And as recently as 1967, that figure stood at 96.5%. So there are very few men of prime age who are not engaged in at least looking for work. That is down to 89.3% as of the last month. So roughly 7% of the prime-aged male is no longer even trying to find work. That adds up to 7 or 8 million men uh, who are not trying to find work, and hence are habitually underemployed or unemployed. They don't exactly spend their time engaging themselves. Some of these people are out of the labor force because they are delayed educators. Uh, The people who go back to school at 25 or 28. When I was in law school 35 years ago, at 26, I was one of the older students in class. I would expect now I would be the median in a law school as taking two to four years off has become the norm. But nonetheless, uh, what we see is that only about one-sixth or one-seventh of the people who are not working are engaged in education. The rest are engaged in something else. Nor is it the rise of the stay-at-home dad, that there are people who are taking care of parents or grandparents or being the person like Carly Fiorina's husband who gave up his job to take care of their children as she became CEO at HP. Uh, But they, too, are only less than 10% of the people. The overwhelming number of people who are not working either give no particular reason, say they are retired, or the massive, large number, say they are ill or disabled. And that's the key to beginning to understand what's really going on with the male crisis. Because it's not really a male crisis, it's a men without college degree crisis that there are studies that take a look at labor force participation rates in the prime age across generations. What you find is that there's almost no increase if you have a college degree between whether you're a member of the silent generation or if you're a member of Generation X. Most men who have a college degree are engaged in the labor force, the rate at rates not seen in the broader prime age participation rate since the 1970s. What's gone up and goes up each generation is the number of people who don't have a college degree who drop out of the labor force. That goes up 4 to 6% uh, in each generation. And it also goes up with age, so that now you have 6% of people who are 55 or older out of the labor force if you have a college degree. Uh, if you are 55 years old or 54 years old and you are uh, uh, have less than a college degree and you're a man, 20% are out of the labor force. And this gets to the question about disability. What's increasingly happened is if you don't have a college degree and you get older, you go on disability, which is a government program. And that points to something also that we need to take a look at, is why is it rational for somebody without a college degree to take the low but steady paycheck that a government disability program offers rather than progressive work? So I want to get into that by showing that this decline has not been linear. In fact, there are periods where it doesn't decline at all. The first decline started from 1967 to 74, when male la- prime age labor force participation drops from 96 and a half to 94 and a half. Those of us of a certain age will remember that there were two large recessions that happened during that period. Then it stays roughly stable for 16 years, the Carter years, the Reagan years, the beginning of the Bush years, Men are not dropping out of the workforce. It then drops by about two points during the early 1990s, a period that combines rapid demobilization of the military along with a recession. It then stays even during the Clinton years and then takes two more drops from 92 to 91 percent during the recession of 2001, and then the massive drop during the Great Recession from 91 percent to 88 percent. Yes male labor force, prime age participation has risen from where it was eight years ago, from 88 percent to about 89.3 percent. Note the coincidence, it always takes place during periods of economic dislocation. So I'd like to point to a few things that we should take a look at to better understand what to do. The first, obviously, is deindustrialization. That it used to be in the 1950s or 60s that if you didn't get a high school, or if you only got a high school degree, or you didn't get a uh, high school degree, you could get a job that was decently paying, if not middle class paying. Those jobs don't seem to exist anymore. That instead of the decent wage, low skill job, you have the low wage, low skill job. You have um, the rise in the extension of disability insurance. It becomes simply more rational for you to get on to roles that have been loosened and the eligibility for which has been moved away from what you and I would consider disabled to what they call functionally disabled, which is to say, you can get disability insurance if you had a stroke and you can't work, or you're quadriplegic, the classic sorts of things that we would anyone would say, this person's disabled, they can't work. What the government program now does is say, if you're older and you have less education and you're working in a less in demand industry, you're functionally disabled. And you get awarded disability insurance at a lower level of physical impairment. Why wouldn't somebody who's been working in backbreaking work, who has less, who's a college or high school dropout, take the low but steady wage, especially since it doesn't get adjusted for whether or not your partner or your wife is working? It's an individual-based determination. It's not a household-based determination. Then you have a question that I don't think has been seriously looked at and needs to be examined as part of this. And that is the question of conscription and the military. When we had these record high percentage rates, if you were not enrolled in college, you're highly likely to be drafted. We had two and a half to three million people in the US military during the 1950s and the 1960s, almost all of them conscript, 98% of them male, according to the statistics. What does that do? It gives you order, it gives you structure, it gives you a credential, and it may give you a skill. 18 to 21-year-olds could be drafted and come out, even in the lack of formal education, with something that was of value to employers. That no longer exists. We don't have conscription. You have to have a high school degree and pass cognitive tests to even enlist. Only 80% of the military today is male, and it's half the size it was. It's 1.35 million versus 2.5 to 3 million in a population that's 50% larger. The option that society provided, albeit indirectly for these men 50 years ago, simply doesn't exist today, which places more pressure on the formal education structures that have never been constructed to figure out what to do with people in the bottom third of the cognitive scale, whose primary value historically has been physical labor rather than mental analysis. So what should we do? Well, obviously, we need to do a lot of things on the social front. We need to encourage families. We need to encourage fatherhood. We need to encourage marriage and so forth. But what can we do on the policy level? A few things I'd like to uh, talk about. First, seriously take a look at high school education for people in the low, for men, boys in the lower third of the people who are unlikely to even enroll in college, and if they are, are highly likely to drop out. To create a structured skill based acquisition program that gives them a credential and real skills that they can take with them into the labor force. Second, we need to deal with spatial mismatch. If you take a look at county level participation rates they are not even places that are job deserts like the Mississippi Desert, uh, Delta or uh, rural Kentucky have overall labor male labor force partition rates of 50 or 60%. You take a look at economically vibrant areas you'll see 85, 90 or above. Now some of those rates obviously are still low but There are millions or hundreds of thousands and maybe over a million men of prime age working age who are stuck in job deserts, who do not move. And every government program they come into grips with or come into contact with does not encourage them to move. We will pay anyone going to college to leave their homes to study in college, and we will give them nothing if they want to go take a job in the Rio Grande Valley working in a manufacturing plant. Perhaps that should change. The other thing I think we need to take a look at is disability insurance, is that people are subject to temptation. I don't want to condemn anyone who has worked in a difficult job, who faces slim job prospects and doesn't want to leave their job desert. I do blame a system that says, if you have obstacles, you should just give up. The disability system encourage people with certain degrees of education and job prospects to give up. And once they're on the roll for a year or more, they're highly unlikely to get off. If they're on the roll for two years, they get Medicare. You can be a 56-year-old man getting $1,100 a month from Social Security disability and Medicare until you reach your full retirement age. And it doesn't matter what your partner or your spouse is earning. This is bad for the man. This is bad for society. And it must change. So there are some things that we can do independent of the larger social problems that I think can ameliorate this problem. And I think as a policy institute, the Heritage Foundation and similar policy institutes should take a look at those in addition to the more difficult but ultimately more rewarding social issues if you really want to address the downstream of the boy crisis, and that's the male unemployment crisis.
1: Well, thank you all very much. That was wonderful. We're going to go ahead and turn to questions from the audience because I'm sure there will be a lot. I just ask that you do ask a question rather than making a statement, and if you have a particular panelist you would like a response from, indicate that. Otherwise, we'll leave it to their discretion. Yes, sir, in the back. Hi. Thank you all for your time. Um, quick question, uh, mostly pertaining to uh, Dr. Olson's um, speech, which, again, I really appreciate. Um, so there's a response, especially from Gen Z, about the response to working their whole life. Uh, it's generally seen as as uh, a negative perspective um, when you have to work your whole life instead of pursuing the, the wants that go away from work. So how can we respond maybe in a policy, maybe in a psychological aspect in terms of uh, changing how this has shaped young minds to um, back away from, you know, creating a hard-earned life from hard work and creating success from their dedication and time. How can we start to change this? Well,
0: I think. You know, would either of you like to take that? Since <laughs> that's as much in your bailiwick as it is in mine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's Part of it has to be social, and part of it has to be educational, you know, which is that uh, you need to have, uh, there's an assumption in many of our educational systems that success is going on to college, and going on to college is not success. And I think for this sub-demographic of men, that's never going to work, and you need to recognize reality <laughs> and meet reality where it is. And that means providing a honored sense of achievement and advancement within the public education system.
1: Yes, sir, in the front. I was just
2: asking, um, trying to see if among you, the researchers, somebody can tell me if there is any master key that can solve all at once, all the multitude of issues, thousands of issues society has today in America and in the world. Do, does any one of you have any uh, suggestion about one master key that, sol- that can solve all the issues at once.
3: I have one suggestion, <laughs> which uh, most everyone who's addressed the problems of boys has come to one change that would make all the difference, which is we need a, a kind of Marshall Plan for male literacy. There is a huge problem, that, that that's the, the, the gap is a chasm between Uh, female literacy and and male, and it's cross-cultural, every society's dealing with it, but it's just a big challenge to uh, get boys to read, to want them to be part of the world of the written word. And if you can do that, and there are ways to do it, and we should be studying them a broken record. I mean, if we had schools of education that that focused on male pedagogy, there would be, every teacher would have a reading list of b- books, irresistible to boys. And even the whole war over phonics versus whole language. People didn't talk about the gender aspects, but there's no question that, well, for everybody, phonics is better, uh, but for boys, it's almost a, a necessity. So they're just, we're doing everything wrong in terms of literacy, but I think it, once you do that, you open up the world of reading and that, of course, has implications for how you do in all of your other classes, even even math and science classes require literacy. So I would think maybe that would be a sort of uncontroversial thing we could do, although just try it. There will be, you will be called a backlasher if you want to say you're addressing the problems of boys. But that's, that would be one thing.
1: Nancy, do you want to respond to
3: that as well? Oh, I love it.
2: <laughs> I love that idea. And uh, my main concern too is the backlash uh, you 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 label a label backlasher um, but uh, did somebody mention Richard Reese you mentioned yes, yes. Yeah. so uh, I think it's cool that uh, up until recently um, if you this was a left right issue it, it, it shouldn 't be right it It should be that everyone cares about boys it 's time to have compassion on men and boys they are falling behind um and I think it's great that Richard Reeves, being you know, clearly a man more on the left, it's now OK for him to say this. <laughs> it's, it's become OK for a liberal person to say, we need to care about boys and men. And just the fact that he wrote a book, and it is well-received, it's a very recent book, uh, I think is a very good mark. Because, yes, I remember the controversy over Dr. Summer's book when she first wrote The War on Boys. And now there's been a sea change. People are far, finally starting to say, oh, it's okay to acknowledge that men and boys are falling behind. And that's a good sign. So I'm, I am hopeful. Of course, the reason is boys are falling behind so badly that you can't be ignored anymore. So that's sad. But at least um, it's no longer something that's just considered an issue on the right or reactionary conservatives. You know, it's becoming an issue that people can, you know, are allowed to acknowledge on both sides of the political aisle
1: yes ma'am in the front
4: okay thanks
3: regarding fatherless boys have the studies showed a a difference between um, a divorce or never married couple um, versus uh, a father who died
2: oh yeah Um, interesting question because yes it's far worse divorce is far worse than a father who died, because a father who died, you re- retain a positive memory, right? The, the family still honors him; they remember what a good man he was, and they put his picture up, and they teach their children. The you know the mother teaches her children to honor and respect him still, and so th- it's a very different emotional tone than if the fathers, if they've divorced. There's a lot of animosity. There's no good divorce. Right? There's always some animosity and some tension and some anger. And so it is not uncommon at all for boys to pick up you know, negative resp- responses to their, to their father. And so it, that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. People have found that a widow you know, who's f- lost her father to death, um, the children do much better than divorce.
4: Oh, okay, thank you. sorry. <laughs> Catherine Pekalik from Catholic University, thank you for your remarks. Um, all stimulating and interesting. I have two questions which you can take um, in turn. One is if, if any of you wants to comment on the school system being predominantly co-ed and you know, the, the loss of male schools and and, and all girls schools as, as maybe being part of the formative um, difficulty. And the other question um, relates to the statistics on the labor force participation and um, I understand them as cross-sectional, and you know there's a lot of population changes compositional over time. So I wondered if um, we have any access to longitudinal individual-level data that can help us draw conclusions about the possibility of men with different types of backgrounds, college education, family structure, um, surviving those periods of economic dislocation better than others, uh, if you're aware. I, I could take the first, maybe you'll take the
3: second. I can, yeah. <laughs> Um, there's a, a, certainly evidence that boys thrive in single sex classrooms. It, it's a little mixed about how much you know better they are. The, what worries me more is the uh even in co-ed schools, the absence of male teachers, just mm-hmm. a disappearing species. There are almost no men men now certainly in k through t- k through twelve, um, you have very few male teachers and uh, you know, when we saw, it, and it didn't used to be the case, it was, there were many uh, male teachers. In fact, you go far back enough, they were all male teachers. But now what you find is that um, there's almost no effort in schools of education to recruit more males. They are uh, something 70, 80 percent female now in the enrollments, and there, there's no outreach. Now we see in schools of engineering that you had so many more ma- ma- males, so there are massive efforts to get more girls to focus and study engineering. Where are the programs to get young men into early childhood education, or even just education in general? They aren't there. And we know that um, a lot of boys rea- re- just can thrive in a classroom that is a l- sort of sympathetic to uh, certain levels of uh, rambunctiousness. And they enjoy the male teachers. and. Uh, but they don't have them. And the point is, increasingly, our schools have been f- feminized. And the classrooms, the readings, it, uh, it's a, a, lot, a lot of it catered to the interests and strengths of girls. And so I uh, would like to see more single-sex schools, or even experiments with single-sex classrooms. We had them for a while. But the ACLU went in and sued and called it gender apartheid. And so that was <laughs> stopped. So it's, it, there are obstacles, but we, I think we need a huge campaign to get more guys into teaching.
0: On the second question, there may be studies. I'm not aware of them. And I think that's one of the great questions, is why is it that some people deal with dislocation and collapse? And why is it that others deal with dislocation, and if not thrive, adapt? Um, I think that would be a place that would bear, merit a lot of study. We have time for one more question. Uh, Delano Squires, Heritage Foundation. Um, This question is mainly to Christina Hoff Summers. I wonder, how do you react to um, the findings of Nancy Piercy that men have traditionally seen the protection and provision um, of women and for women as part of their role as men? One, do you see that as chauvinist, and then two, do you feel that the promotion of traditional marriage and family as a as a response to this crisis um, is something that sort of traditionally liberal feminists can get behind?
3: Well, the first thing I'll say is the, we've heard a lot about toxic masculinity. And what these critics forget is that there's also positive masculinity which is the opposite. So a a toxic male, or sometimes they call it pathological masculinity, a pathologically masculine male shows his manhood by preying on weaker people, destroying, bullying, intimidating. Positive masculinity is the opposite. You show your manhood and your masculinity by being protective of weaker people, by building, not destroying. And I still believe that, now that the boys know how to do it, but still, I think the majority of men in uh, this country do events a positive masculinity. There's a lot of confusion with, with young men, and but I do think it is. Uh, there's a certain protectiveness uh, towards uh, women who are typically weaker, physically weaker, and um, uh, now we are a more egalitarian society. So there's going to be there could be. A, Difference in gender roles, where you're you're not entering the marriage as, you know he's the the sort of uh, in charge of the family. We don't not too many people have marriages like that now. You see one another as equal, but you I I look at statistics, and what I find is that the, it's still a majority of women. You ask them what is your ideal life arrangement, and um, they want to work. Women want to have jobs, careers. But when they have children, they would prefer to work part-time. Uh, something 60% of women prefer, would prefer to work part-time. You have a small percentage that want to work full-time. Even if they have children, uh, their high-powered career is good for them. They're not the majority. Then there's a smaller percentage that don't want to work at all and would just like to be stay-at-home moms. But that, that, that's what women want. And so uh, th- uh, now, you're not going to close the wage gap if you do that there will still be because then women will be retreating from the workforce and so that's most of the feminist establishment only cares about that mm-hmm. not really what are women's preferences so uh, and the last thing i'll say is that uh i wish there were it were the case that the uh, the left would take more seriously the importance of stable families for children and especially for boys it, it's been shown that in any you know, traumatic situation, family trauma, if you have a divorce or if you have violence, if you have uh, extreme poverty, it has a disparate impact on the boys and they are more seriously damaged, a- educationally, socially, there's a, a fragility. Uh, the girls are, for reasons that aren't fully understood, seem to be able to cope better. And so for all of these reasons, you would think, There would be a movement um, towards urging people to marry and to have, uh, you know, not and against uh, uh, single-parent families uh, as a norm. Of course, that will happen, but to have that as a norm, it's simply not viable socially. And yet, uh, I once brought that up at at an event at Stanford University. We were discussing the wage gap, and somehow I brought up uh, the advantages of having uh, stable families and, and, and what price women pay trying to raise children by themselves without a partner, without a husband. And people were just horrified that I was suggesting that there could be anything wrong with, uh, with uh, any bad effects of having raising children without a father. Well, it just turns out fatherlessness is a, a tragedy uh, for everyone, but especially for the boys. So I don't consider it a conservative aspiration. And in fact, if you look at liberal, upper middle class liberals, that's how they live. <laughs> they have the stablest marriages in the world and expect them for their children. But when they come to writing the sociology for everyone else, they're celebrating you know, alternative arrangements.
1: OK. Well, unfortunately, we do have to end there. We've only scratched the surface. But thank you all for coming for this robust conversation and thank our panelists very much for their remarks.